All right, let's take our Bibles. Genesis chapter 19. Genesis chapter 19. For some reason, uh, this year, we're doing studies for Father's Day and Mother's Day about very kind of unorthodox parents. Um, I don't know why, but it's, it's just what the Spirit's led us to, and I think there's a lot of powerful insight here. You may remember that in May, we studied Hagar, and we talked about um, how the Lord ministered to her in a very difficult and very unfair personal situation and how she met the Lord in his presence at the well. Hagar really was, was kind of a victim of the circumstances. She was put in an unenviable position and um, with, with Sarah's lack of faith and all that. We remember that study. But um, the person we're studying this morning, the dad we're looking at today, um, just makes one bad decision after another. And really... Uh, at what point he probably qualifies as one of the worst fathers in the Bible. Um, I would only put him behind those men that sacrificed their kids to appease the gods. But, but Lot comes in a close second. Um, Lot is really not somebody that you would look at to, to uh, be a father figure, somebody to copy and emulate. And there, there aren't a lot of them in the Bible, but... But he's really one of the worst. Now, you men might be going, why do we get a bad dad for our message? And I'm glad you asked that. Not only will this show us what not to do, all right, because sometimes you learn by what not to do, um, and not just for dads, but parents in general. But this also will give us some really helpful insights into how we can be holy and how we can protect our kids against some of the really insidious attacks of the enemy. Now, hopefully, Genesis 19, you know some of the background uh, about Lot. He was Abraham's nephew. He was traveling with Abraham and Sarah. Um, so he's not only around people who are walking with the Lord, but he also is very cognizant and very aware of the covenant that the Lord had made with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, um, and he's an eyewitness to God's work. He's an eyewitness to, to how the Lord is leading Abraham. He also, we remember, um, that he had kind of an undeserved advantage that Abraham had given to him. Uh, Abraham stood him up on a mountain and said, here's all the land. You take half, I'll take half, and you get to pick first, even though Abraham was the patriarch. Um, he was gracious to Lot, and Lot, out of greed, uh, chose the land that was more favorable, the land that was more fertile. Um, so that was uh, kind of a, a poor decision. And you know, that, that reveals something to us. Our character is revealed even in the smallest choices, isn't it? Even in the littlest things that we pick. And, and if we are promoting ourselves and advancing ourselves in the little things, that's going to be true in the bigger things. So um, how we act not only gives people insight into uh, whether we'll humble or selfish, but also whether we are going to be uh, gracious and, and helpful and kind, or whether we're just going to be at it for ourselves. So Lot shows that early on. Um, he shows it in terms of his greed and picking the land. And then uh, as he's doing that, that kind of was a little trigger uh, that something else was going on. Now we see as he chooses the land, he chose the land that was closer to the city of Sodom. And he did that out of uh, an internal desire to accommodate himself. There, there's something that we're going to look at this morning that, that was in him that as he occupied this land, then he started to move his tents closer to the land. 
And chapter 13 says that this was not a city where you wanted to be. Because chapter 13 says that Sodom was a city where the men were exceedingly wicked and sinners against the Lord. Now, let me speak to the men just for a second. Who we surround ourselves with greatly influences who we will be spiritually. Now, that doesn't just apply to the men, but I'm going to speak to the men just about that this morning. We have to be careful, men, who we surround ourselves with. Proverbs 4 says, Don't enter into the path of the wicked, and do not proceed in the way of evil men. Avoid it. Don't pass by it. Turn away from it. Proverbs 13 says, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. 1 Corinthians 15 says, Bad company corrupts good morals. So Ephesians 5 says, Do not participate in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead even expose them. Now, Lot didn't do that. He didn't guard himself. He didn't stand against it. He, didn't, um, he wasn't concerned about what was around him. Instead, he participated in it. And he neglected his spiritual, uh, anything spiritual that was birthed in him from being around Abraham and Sarah. And instead, he, he kind of ingrained himself in the culture and eventually, as we're going to see in a couple minutes, became a proponent of it. And here's what we have to understand about that. The enemy's goal for us is for that. No matter what your level of spiritual maturity, whether you're unsaved this morning, you don't care about God, you're angry at God, whether you are newly saved and you're uh, getting the, that first excitement about the Lord, whether you've been saved 10 or 15 years and you've kind of settled in, or whether you've been saved a long time and you're mature in the Lord, whatever your level of spiritual maturity, whatever your level of spiritual interest, the enemy's goal is to ingrain us into sin. He's not intimidated, apparently, because he's brash, because he challenged Jesus to his face. So he's not scared of you and me. He's scared of the cross, and he's scared of the empty tomb, and he knows he's defeated. But he's going to go down in a blaze of glory. So his job is to try to, to get us to fall back, to get us to not be spiritually minded and not to grow and mature in the Lord. Now, as parents, that should really frustrate us. That should make us angry. That should make us hostile. Not, not fearful because we know Jesus already won victory. But we should be angry at the devil. We should be hostile toward the pervasive depravity that he is working to perpetuate in our culture. We should be ticked off about that. What we see in the entertainment industry, music, technology, that's all just an outward expression of what the devil's trying to do. That's people whose hearts aren't inclined to the Lord, who reject Jesus Christ. That, that's just evidence of that. And it shouldn't surprise us, but it also should not discourage us, and it shouldn't cause us to feel powerless. Because as we'll see here in Genesis 19, this is not new. This is not new. This is 4,000 years old. When we see what we're going to read this morning, it was just as bad then. The problem is the open availability of technology makes it much more accessible now. So as parents especially, we need to be very wise. We need to be very guarded about how we teach our kids, how we help our kids. And, and, and it starts with not just saying, hey, kids, stop doing that. It starts with us modeling it in our own lives. 
because I can't teach my kids about some of the dangers of technology if I'm participating in it. I can't tell kids, well, you shouldn't do that, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do this, if I'm doing it in my own life. So this morning, I want to just very quickly uh, outline, we're going to look at five steps of Lot's decline. And if you're taking notes, and I really encourage you to this morning, just to get some thoughts down. Five steps of Lot's decline. We're going we're gonna to identify them, and by doing that, it'll help us understand how they came about and how we guard against it. Because this is something that can happen so easily. Even with Lot's background, even with hanging around with Abraham, even with being blessed with all this land and a lot of wealth and all kinds of things, Lot made very poor decisions that, that kind of followed as a domino one after another. Now we're going to read the chapter kind of in sections. And again, I encourage you to take some notes and to review them throughout the week because we're going to try to formulate a plan of offense and a plan of defense, okay? Start chapter 19, verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom. These may be the same angels that appeared to Abraham at his tent. Two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed with his face to the ground. And he said, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. They said, however, no, but we will spend the night in the square. Yet Lot urged them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Now, let's quickly walk through this. The first step of decline that we need to guard against, okay? There are five steps. The first step of decline that we need to guard against is the steady drift of compromise, the steady drift of compromise. Now, Lot's compromise did not begin when the angels showed up. His compromise started all the way back when he made the initial choice to move his tent towards Sodom. And that tells us that at the outset, Lot was determined to live near sin. He accepted it as a possibility. He became open-minded to, to what was spiritually risky. He, 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 he allowed himself to drift toward it. And then every time his tents moved, every, every day when the tents would move, they would move closer and closer and closer and closer in proximity. Like the sand around him, he just kept kind of sifting and drifting until the city wasn't all the way off in the distance, until he found himself right at the gates. What was foreign, what was, what was wrong for him, became very familiar. And that steady decline can be very subtle. And we have to be very aware because it, we, we may not even realize it's taking place. It's yielding a little bit here and compromising a little bit there and giving it a little bit there and allowing our heart to drift just a little bit. Outlandish temptation is really not effective. If you present a really strong temptation as a mature believer, you go, oh, come on, who are you kidding? I'm not going to do that. That would be absolutely wrong. That's not how the devil works most of the time. He just introduces a little thing, a little, little drift, a little compromise, a little, little giving in. And Lot, day after day, moves closer and closer until one day he decides, you know what? I think I'm going to get a house. 
Why stay on the outside when I've gotten to know all the people? I'm there every day. I'm in the market. I'm meeting people. I got to know Charlie and Bill and Sam and, and Peter, and, and we're all friends now, and we're hanging out. You know what? Why am I still living in my tent out here? I've got money. Why don't I move into the city? And eventually, and this is always the case, we compromise. He's worn down to the point where it becomes comfortable to live there. And that's not accidental. This is not Hagar, victim of the circumstances. E even if we didn't have chapter 13 to tell us that, there's one detail. Look back at verse 1. There's one detail that the Holy Spirit gives us that tells us this was the case. It's that line that says, he was sitting in the gate of Sodom. Now, what do real estate agents tell us is the key to a good property, right? Location, location, location. They say it three times so we make sure we get it. Well, the Spirit of God in Genesis chapter 19, verse 1, is telling us that Lot made a very intentional choice to live there because not only had he moved closer, not only had it become familiar, not only had he chosen to live here and made this his home, but the Spirit now tells us that Lot had become the greeter and the advocate for the city. You see, in the Middle Eastern culture in that time, the gate was where people gathered socially. It was the, it was the front door, and usually the marketplace would be right there, and many times the, the halls of justice, the courthouse or whatever, would be right there. So, so it was kind of the centerpiece of the city. The person that sat at the gate was not only fully involved in the life of the city, but their job was to welcome people in and get them integrated and get them to be interested in living there. So Lot doesn't just say, well, I'll kind of test this out. He becomes so ingrained in the culture of Sodom that now he's the greeter. He's the one who says, this is a great place to live. Welcome to Sodom. We're glad you're here. I'm Lot. Uh, you know, I've lived here for a while. It's a wonderful place. We've got houses over here and here. If you need something to eat or drink, it's right over there. Uh, if you have a problem with the law, here's the police station right here. Let me, let me welcome you. Let me help you get around. That's who he would become. Now, that leads us to a question. How are we encouraging people to live? And what are we enticing them to do? You see, the depravity of the city was so unmistakable that Lot had to know, if I go there, I'm going to be open to temptation. This will be a chronic problem. But he quickly not only goes from, from worrying about temptation to yielding to it, but it doesn't take long until he's the one doing the enticing. He's making it easy and comfortable for people to be part of that too. And that leads me to ask myself and ask you, what influence do you want to have on other people? Is it an influence that's spiritually compromised or one that encourages people to love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength? See, Lot didn't see that was important. He allowed the first step, the steady drift to compromise, and that leads to the second step, which is the acceptance of moral concession. The acceptance of moral concession. Now, that word concession means to allow, agree to, and yield to, and that's exactly what Lot did. There's no question that, that his life was integrated into Sodom, that that was intentional, that he was fully aware of the nature of the culture and the fact that there would be temptation. And again, he knew the difference. He had been around Abraham and Sarah. He knew what holiness looked like. He knew the kindness and the blessing of the Lord 
that, that God had put on his life. And he was there every time, four times between the covenant in chapter 12 and chapter 19. Four times Abraham builds an altar. And when you build an altar, you're making a statement of worship to the Lord, and you're making a statement of surrender to the Lord. That's why many times at the end of the service we'll say, come to the altar. This is not a sacred place because it's been built by, by the Yakos. This is a sacred place because we believe this is where the presence of God is. So when you come to the altar, you are coming to a place of sacrifice and surrender. You're falling before the Lord and you're worshiping him and saying, I need help. That's why the lamb was slain on the altar. That's why Jesus went to the cross. That was a vertical altar because it was the sacrifice that was made to praise God for his mercy. So everywhere Abraham went, Bethel, Build an altar. Ai build an altar. Everywhere he went, he built an altar. And Lot was there. He was watching him build altar after altar after altar. Now Lot goes down into Sodom, where it's exceedingly wicked, and the sin was exceedingly grave. And he's not confused. He knows exactly what's going on. And he morally concedes again and again. He starts to assimilate his life into the city and he finds a wife and he has kids and he holds jobs and after 25 years look at it he becomes a local legend hasn't protected himself against the blatant temptation that's all around him he just continues to give in and give in and give in you know we don't make decisions in isolation there's always an, an ancillary impact on others. And we see that starting in verse 4. Before they laid down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. And they called a lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. But Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him. Get the visual now. He said, Please, my brothers, notice the term, Please, my brothers, don't act wickedly. Now behold, I have two daughters who have not yet had relations with men. Please let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you'd like. Only do nothing to these men as much as they've come under the shelter of my roof. What about your daughters? But they said, stand aside. Furthermore, they said, this one, speaking of Lot, came as an alien. Now they've turned on him because they're not getting their way. Already he's acting like a judge. Now we'll treat you worse than them. So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. But the men, the angels, reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the door with a house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. Here's the third step of decline. The third step is the willingness to negotiate with sin. The willingness to negotiate with sin. Now notice in verses 2 and 3 that Lot clearly recognizes that these men are different. We don't know if he knows that they're angels, but he probably doesn't, is, is my theory, because he wants to protect them. If he knew they were angels, he knew they could protect themselves. So he's, he's protective of them. And, and I, I, I asked myself as I studied that, is there still some semblance of spiritual discernment in his mind? He's been so morally compromised from living there and so integrated, but do, is there still a glimmer of some morality and some right and wrong? We have to wonder that because he invites them into his house and he says, tell you what, guys, sleep here tonight, but first thing in the morning, you got to get out of here. 
First thing in the morning, you have got to be gone. Now that shows, what does that show? Always read between the lines. That shows that he knows that this is not a healthy place spiritually. It shows that he doesn't want these new friends to be corrupted. So he's clearly aware of the danger of the city. And when the, and when the angels say, no, you know, we don't want to sleep here. I tell you, we'll just go out in the square. Because in that culture, a lot of times you didn't have a place to stay. You just slept out in the square. He says, yeah, not a good idea. I don't, I, no, you guys stay here. And they're like, no, it's fine. We'll sleep out in the square. And I want you to look at, look at it. He says, he urged them strongly. Don't do that. I wonder how that conversation went, don't you? Did he reveal, why, Lot? Why, why don't you want us to, well, guys, I tell you, this is not the best place in the world. This, this is a very evil, depraved nation, uh, city. Uh, you, you don't want to be. Did he reveal that? Because doing that would expose that he had a conscience. Well, why don't you want to sleep? It's just, just not play. Well, it's gorgeous tonight. Like, it'd be perfect to sleep outside. I, just think about the conversation. Well, no, you guys can't do that. It's not safe. Well, what do you mean it's not safe? Is there a lot of crime? No, well, it, it's a lot, of, a lot of weird kind of stuff. Well, what is that like? I mean, how much does he reveal? Because the more he revealed, the more it showed he knew exactly what he was doing, exposing himself to that environment, taking up residence there, being comfortable with it, being friends with that, and yet not wanting others to be part of it. Now, ask yourself here. What am I comfortable with regularly being a part of that I don't necessarily want other people to be involved in, especially your kids? What, what, what am I good with that I don't want other people to good with? Now, now do we have a double standard for our kids that, that we don't, uh, excuse me, a double standard for our kids that we don't have for ourselves? Kind of a do as I say, kids, but, but don't do as I do. Now, that's not a reason to lessen our standards to make it easier for them. It means we need to raise our standards, and we need to change what we're doing. I was thinking about this this week, because there was a time about 20 years ago where we were watching a sitcom. We were at, at the house with my parents. They were over, and we were watching a sitcom. I don't remember which one it was. Friends, Cheers, one of those ones that you watched in the 80s and 90s, and and we were, it kind of came on and we're like, oh, this is, a, this is a really funny show. You guys should watch this. Big mistake. Because in the first couple minutes, there were jokes about sexual innuendo and there were coarse language. And I have never been more awkward in my whole life. They're like, oh, yeah, well, that's not a good episode. But you know what? Julie and I talked about it later and we're like, if we can't watch it around my parents, why are we watching it? Like, why are we exposing ourselves to that? And honestly, from that moment on, we stopped watching whatever show that was. I don't remember what it was. You see, when we're not on guard, spiritual corruption surrounds us and it tries to invade our hearts. That's what we see in verses 4 and 5. Before Lot's house goes to sleep, the men of the city, young and old, everybody, they surround the house and they demand a lot. Release these men. We want to violate them. This is a frenzied mob that is intent on denigrating these people physically and morally. They have no regard for biological reality. They're not constrained by any sense of propriety or, or modesty or kindness. This is, just, this is just base immorality without restraint. 
Now, where this hit me this week, and the reason we're studying this this morning, is because this is a similar picture of what's being advanced by the devil in our culture. And Jamie Canolti and I were talking on Wednesday night uh, at the bond, senior high bonfire at our house, and he raised this idea. We were just talking, and he made a statement, and it just clicked with me. We were talking about Worldview Academy, where four of our high schoolers are going today. It's a week-long um, conference kind of seminar on a college campus where you learn worldview from 8 o'clock in the morning to 10 o'clock at night, a Christian worldview. And we're very committed to this. I want to tell you more about this in the days ahead because we're committed to this as a church. We want our high schoolers, we want our middle schoolers to go through this. This dramatically changed Jacob's life, my son. It's very much impacted Annie's life. I'm anxious to get Matthew there next year. And we as a church, leadership has already talked, we're, we're willing to support our students financially so they can do this. So I'm going to tell you more about that in the days ahead. But we were talking about Worldview Academy, and Jamie referred to this passage. I don't remember the context. He just said, this is an example, this passage, of how entitled and demanding people can be when they're in sin. And, and it accurately describes our society. Now, we've talked over the last couple of weeks about civility and morality and the discourse in our country, how it's declined and how discouraging that can be to our spirit. But, but listen, we have to be educated about this. We have to be uh, aware of what's going on because it shows us the enemy's tactics and it shows us how we can minister against this because he's using people and he's using non-biblical cultural values to try to corrupt us and to an even greater extent to corrupt our kids. So we as parents, we as Christians, we as a church have to fight this. Think about how ingrained this is, not just in the, in the mindset of millennials. And millennials kind of get a, get a rough you know, go of it. We're always blaming millennials. But listen, this goes all the way back to boomers and busters and everybody. This is my generation. We're the one that started that moral decline. And there are a couple, uh, couple uh, characteristics of it that we can see that are right here in the text. There's the prevailing attitude of entitlement. The men of Sodom believe they have every right to get what's not theirs simply because they want it. We see example after example that every day the, the privileged, self-centered mindset of entitlement. We had a study about it about a year ago. Second, would you see that there's a demanding culture? Entitlement leads to insistence. Well, I want it, so I'm allowed to have it. Well, you haven't earned it. I don't care. I deserve it. And it should be given to me without question. And if you don't give it to me, and then they'll just throw out a name. You're this or you're this. You're racist or you're sexist or you're uh, repressive or whatever. It, it's give me my way now. There's no no. Give me what I want. Lifestyle choices, free cell phones, health care. Doesn't matter. I want it all. Give it to me. And you know what we've done as parents? Okay, well, we want you to like us. Right? Entitlement and demanding. And you know where that leads? Here's where it gets scary. Look back at the text. That leads to sexual promiscuity and deviation. And that's where so much of the enemy's focus is right now to try to make what is abnormal and unbiblical normal. And once you have sexual deviancy, 
that usually follows with violence. And there is no question that we are seeing a new acceptance of violence, which is pervasively promoted and which is pushing the envelope more and more. I read an article this week about a new video game called Cyberpunk. Cyberpunk, the creators say that the most important theme of this game, I'm going to read verbatim, is transhumanism. The belief that humanity can transcend its current mental and physical form with the help of technology. If you don't believe this is happening, you're just not paying attention. All the AI, everything else. Transhumanism. Here's the quote. To learn what it means for players to become transhuman, one of the pieces of imagery that the team plans to use is nudity. There's one scene in particular that opens up with a simple quest to retrieve a kidnapped woman, but turned into a bizarre and gruesome tableau. The kidnappers weren't holding her for ransom. They were planning to chop her up for spare parts, harvesting the high-tech implants in her body for sale on the black market. This is the new video game. Listen carefully. We talked about worldview. Listen carefully at the game designer's worldview. He says, this is cyberpunk, so people augment their body. So the body is no longer sacrum or sacred. It is profanum or profane because people modify everything. They're losing their connection to the body, to the meat, unquote. Now, that may shock us, but that's the type of desensitization that is taking place in media and video games that our kids are playing for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. Now, transhuman, you can alter your body through technology. You don't need it. Somebody goes useless, you just chop them up and sell their parts in the black market so somebody else can use it. They're negotiating life. That's exactly what Lot did. Look back at verse 6. He goes out to stand with them. Oh, brothers, oh, my friends. He tries to reason with them. And then in verse 7, he kindly says, please don't act wickedly. That always works, right? When you, when you parent your kids, please don't do the wrong thing. Okay, Dad. <laughs> this guy. You can't negotiate with wickedness. Then he makes a horrifying deal in verse 8. He says, I have two daughters who are virgins. That would mean that they were unmarried, so they're likely 15, 16 years old. He says, take them, do whatever you want. He's willing to easily compromise his daughters in their purity and their safety. You know what? You think your dad's bad today. Try having this kind of, try finding a card for that guy. Right? Don't, don't, don't take my new friends who I just met. Take my young daughters and do whatever you want. But it gets worse. Look at verse 12. Then the men said to Lot, whom else have you here? Speaking of the angels. Son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, whomever you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we're about to destroy this place because their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, and he said, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But he appeared to his sons-in-law to be jesting. When morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But Lot hesitated. So the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his daughters, for the compassion of the Lord was on him. Praise the Lord for his mercy. 
and they brought him out and put him outside the city. Here's the fourth step of decline to guard against. It's the reluctance to run away from what harms us. The reluctance to want to run away from what harms us. Now, if an angel walked in here this morning and said, the Lord is going to destroy Racine at 3 o'clock today. He's going to send fire down. The whole city is going to be destroyed. It's evil. It, it will not cry out to the Lord. So he's going to destroy it. Would you go home and have a fire and brimstone party? We better get some drinks on the way home. We better get some snacks because it's going to happen today. So let's have a party. Or would you get in your car as fast as you could and race out of town and call on the Lord for help and protection? See, when Lot hears the news, look at verse 14. It's ironic because he goes to his future sons-in-law and, they, hey, guys, God's about to destroy town. We got to get out of here. And the sons-in-law think he's joking because there's no integrity in his words because he had compromised so many times that when he tries to warn them, he's not spiritually sincere. Now, if we consistently take part in what is unholy, our convictions will lose their effectiveness, right? Our, our witness will no longer have anything. Our spiritual impact will be rendered useless because we have not lived in everyday holiness. Lot is not living in everyday holiness. In fact, even with this news and even with what it means spiritually, he's hesitant to leave, so much so that the angels literally physically have to grab him and try to pull him out. Now, this was not an issue of, well, you know, I like my bed and, and, and I have furniture and, and we have food in the fridge. This was a reluctance to separate himself from what had permeated his heart and his mind because Sodom was home. Physically, mentally, socially, relationally, morally, spiritually, this was home. Originally, when he pitched his tents toward it, it was kind of edgy and kind of dangerous and, and clearly evil. But now it was wonderful. It was familiar. It, it, it was comfortable. And that's what the enemy's selling to us. That's what the enemy's selling to our kids. And we have to fight against it because it's counterfeit. It's counterfeit. When we believe those lies and we allow ourselves to be compromised, it will always lead to the fifth step of decline. The fifth step of decline is the regret, the regret of choosing to live for the Lord. Now you say, come on, Paul, I would never get to that place. I regret living for the Lord. But how often do we feel that twinge in our mind? Well, I wish I could be free like everybody else. I wish I could do what I want. I wish I didn't have all these restrictions. I wish the Bible didn't say that I can't do that because I'd really like to do that. We hear in our mind the temptation that biblical conviction and walking by faith is way too restrictive. And if we buy into that, listen now, if we buy into that, we go very quickly from building altars to what we read in verse 17. came about when they had been brought outside 
that one angel said, escape from your life. Don't look behind you. Don't stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains, lest you be swept away. But Lot said, oh no, my lords, your, your servants found favor in your sight. You've magnified your loving kindness, which you've shown to me by saving my life. But I can't, I won't, I can't escape to the mountains. Let the disaster overtake me and I die. Now behold, this town is near to flee to, and it's small. Please let me escape there, that my life be, may be saved. They already told him his life would be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant this request not to overthrow the town of which you have spoken. Hurry and escape there, for I can't do anything until you arrive there. The name of the town was Zoar. The sun had risen over the earth when, the Lord, when Lot came to Zoar, and the Lord rained fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah from heaven. And he overthrew those cities in the valley and the inhabitants and what grew on the ground. But his wife from behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. You see, Lot's reluctance to leave what was spiritually damaging shows up in another bargain. They say, we'll get you out. We'll get you out of town. Escape to the mountains. You'll be safe. You'll be free. And then we're going to destroy. He says, no, I can't do that. I, I just want to stay really close by. Can I just go to Zoar and just, just hang there? And then his hesitancy is shared by his wife because hours after they left, remember it's morning, hours after they left with explicit warnings, do not look behind you. That's right there in verse 17. Escape. Don't look back. Don't live in regret. She immediately looks back and becomes a pillar of skull. See, see all through the account, there's pervasive regret and disappointment that this can't be part of their lives anymore. And that feeling... That, that doesn't have to be about deviant stuff. It doesn't have to be about, about violent, aggressive sin and nastiness and perverseness. It doesn't have to be about that to entice us. It can be about just little things, little slippage, little drifting, little here, little there, back and forth. Little negotiation with the word of God, little, little compromise, little giving in. I got to fit in. I got to do this. Uh, it, it, I'll be more accepted if I just do that. That's the game that's being played. And it goes from simple thought to decline to becoming part of it to rele being reluctant to turn away from it to actually physically, spiritually resisting because there's regret. I miss what I used to have. Now, dad's Parents, we have to model not doing what Lot did. We have to teach our kids to watch out for these steps. We have to warn them. That's my job as a parent. My job as, my, as a parent is not to be my kid's friend. It is to be their teacher. It is to train them up in the way that they should go so when they are old, they will not depart from it. And we're, again, we're going to support you as parents with Worldview Academy. If you want your kids to go through it, we'll help you financially do that because our job is not to pacify them and just release them to the world. Our job is to say, no, we are going to live for Jesus. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. We're going to serve the Lord. 
And I'm going to model that. I'm going to teach that. I'm going to warn you about that. I'm going to help you with that. I'm going to pray for you about that. I'm going to pray with you about that. I'm going to counsel you about that. And together, we're going to serve the Lord. And if we start to do that, the enemy loses his power. So what's your plan? I want you to encourage you, develop a plan this week based on these five things. What's, what's my plan of offense? How do I combat this? And how do I defend when this temptation and this trial comes? Because it will. How am I going to fight that? Because if we don't have a plan and we're just kind of willy-nilly like, well, I don't know, we'll just do our best. It's not going to work. It's not going to work. The enemy is making plans for you today, for me today. What's he want to do? How's he want to corrupt? How's he want to influence? Especially our kids. How are we going to fight that? And how are we proactively going to live in the confidence and the victory that Jesus Christ provides for us? Let's ask the Lord for some wisdom.